Revelation chapter 4 follows on immediately after Revelation chapter 3. Have you ever dreamed of heaven? Ever have one of those dreams? You know what I'm talking about? I, I, I hear this from many different people. You know, we, I don't understand dreams completely, but I have them. Sometimes they make absolutely no sense. Sometimes they make way too much sense. Have you ever dreamed of heaven? Have you ever just supposed the scenery? Wondered about it? Have you pondered the prospect of being there? I mean, really being there, not just casting it off as, yeah, we're going to go when he calls. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. What are you looking forward to? Do you know? Are you aware? It's no fairy tale or fancy of mind or the imagination. It's not wishful thinking. Heaven is real. I know that's the title of a book, but I don't need a child to go there and come back to tell me. Heaven is an actuality. Heaven is a reality, I believe, far greater, far more real than this reality that we're in. And you wouldn't think of heaven or the hope of heaven or everlasting life, you wouldn't think it wishful thinking if you believed Jesus. See, Jesus said in John 3, verse 12, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then He said, No one has ascended into heaven, but He who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So in other words, I've been there. I know the things of which I speak. And I would wonder if He would add, Do you trust Me? Do you believe Me? He said in John 14, verse 2, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. So tonight, as promised, we are going up to heaven. (laughs) And while we're leaving the church age, check this out, we're not leaving the church Because the church will be there. Verse 1 of chapter 4, After these things I looked, and behold, a door open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Metatauta. We've finally gotten there. After these things, John begins and ends verse 1 with the same phrase, metatauta, metatauta. After these things I saw the door open. After these things, he said, I will show you what must take place. And I remind you, we have just left, look in your Bibles, we have just left the church age. We have just finished seven letters to the seven churches. And it should be graphic to you by now to look at this and to realize that there are no more letters. So if we are in Laodicea, Philadelphia, Sardis, Thyatira, there are no more letters. There is no more or are no more iterations of the church. There's nothing else coming. We should be alerted to that. 
aware of that. If there's anything to the organization, the structure, the sequence of this revelation, then we should recognize vividly that once we finish verse 22 of chapter 3 and come into chapter 4, the church age is over. What does that tell us? If we believe, if we see, and as we've talked about, that we are in the age of Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, what else is there? There are no more versions to come. I can't overstate the significance of the sequence of events. John can't overstate it, which is why he overstates Metatauta. He says it twice to make sure we don't miss it, we don't do a drive-by like I did with a group of high school students back in the mid-90s. They formed a secret order within our youth group called the Secret Order of the Pib. They loved Mr. Pib. You could get Mr. Pib at McDonald's, but you couldn't get it in cans. And that was, that was the good Pib. You know? So I figured one day, a summer day, we would jump in the church van and we'd go buy cans of Mr. Pib. Well, you couldn't get it in Anaheim, California. Closest place was Bakersfield. Two and a half hour drive. But see, you gotta think like a youth pastor thinks. That's two and a half hours up and two and a half hours back. I get to be in the same van with these teenagers and they don't know I'll be doing ministry the whole time. So we jump in the van and off we go. We've been driving about two and a half hours. One of the kids says, hey, shouldn't we be in Bakersfield by now? I said, you know, you just can't miss a city like Bakersfield. And we drove. And eventually I realized we didn't make the 99 cutoff. So like three and a half hours up the freeway, we had to make the turnaround and go back to the city that you just can't miss. Well, John wants to make sure you just don't miss what's happening here in chapter 4. That you follow the sequence of events of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 19, Therefore, write the things which what? No, write the things which you have seen and the things which and the things which will yeah, something like that. John saw Jesus glorified, the things which he had seen. He wrote the seven letters to the seven churches, the things which are across the church age. Now at the end of the church age, John is going to talk about the things which will take place after these things. We come to this point in the revelation of the things which have not yet taken place, but will soon. I'm talking historically here. I'm talking in reality here that the after these things is the next phase of the plan of God. And in verse 2 he says, Immediately I was in spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Interesting, John now says this for the second time. I was in spirit. Remember he said that back in chapter 1, verse 10. I was in spirit on the Lord's day. When I got caught into this vision of of Jesus, I saw Him. Well now, suddenly John says again, I was in spirit. And there's no the there. There's no definite article, so you can line through that if you want to. I was just in spirit. Behold, suddenly this, this thing happened and I was in spirit And I read that and I thought, well, but you already were. And then I remember what Jesus said, John 4, 24. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. But this is different. This isn't just John worshiping in spirit. This is John being caught up in spirit. 
Caught up in spirit. The spirit is doing something here new, something different. He's translating John from earth to heaven. And yet, for the catching up, John spends literally zero time describing the catching up. We fly past verse 1 and suddenly we're simply there. The journey... So now I had a rapture dream several years ago. I still remember. And I remember just... It got like flying at breakneck speed and, and colors are flying by and stars are flying by and I'm flying through the universe. It would have made a great Star Trek episode. And I remember that and I woke up before I got there. I was so disappointed. But the whole dream was about the journey. Hey, I told you this recently. The journey is a twinkling of an eye. The journey is nothing. I guarantee not a single one of us are going to be talking about the journey once we arrive there. In that split second, when we were in the presence, because in that split second, when we meet Him in the sky, suddenly we're with Jesus. As with John, the thing that immediately captures His full and complete attention is not the journey from there to here or from here to there, but it's actually the One who is seated upon the heavenly throne. Now I'm going to hold off on really getting into this till Sunday morning. But I absolutely believe and have become more convinced in studying it over the years that verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 is a picture of the rapture of the church. That it truly is. It fits right in the sequencing of the revelation following the church age, after the church age, before the tribulation, we see a catching up take place. And the description is, is vivid by John of what he sees. And we'll talk about this on Sunday, but I believe we have here a prophetic foreshadowing of the church caught up. John's our rep. He's our representative. He's the one caught up in in our place or representing, if you will, the church in this experience. And he's taken immediately into the throne room of heaven. You see, Jesus always comes in two phases. He did the first time. And He will the second time in the rapture of the church and then the glorious appearing. We'll talk about that Sunday, Lord willing. But when we're caught up again, it will not be the rapture we discussed. That's not what will capture our hearts. It will be the one on the throne. But before we get to Him, there's one thing we need to consider. And that is, I'll give you several things to jot down tonight as we get into the throne room of heaven. And the first thing is the permanence of the throne. The permanence of the throne. Look at verse 2 again. Immediately I was in spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. How does a throne stand? Isn't it a seat? He says, I see a throne standing. What does this word stand? What does this mean? The word is kaimai. And it literally means set, laid down, or appointed. It talks about stability, something that is as it is. Luke 2.34, the old man Shimon in the temple court said to Mary, Behold, this child is Kaimai. This child is appointed for the rise and fall of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no man can kaimai a foundation, lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Talking about an established thing, a sure thing. 
Revelation 21.6 says the city, speaking of New Jerusalem, is laid out, kaimai, as a square. Its length and width and height are equal. What we're saying here is the throne that John sees standing, that John sees kaimai, is permanent, established. This is a permanent rule. Unlike all the thrones of all the kings and rulers and presidents of all the men, this one will not fall. This is a throne forever. It's a throne promised to be forever. Do you remember? David wanted to build God a throne. A house, really, but a house of worship. He had it in mind, in heart. Turn in your Bibles back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7. We're going to go to a couple of different places in Scripture tonight, and I invite you to come along. So get your Bibles open, get your fingers limbered up, and we'll let our fingers do the walking. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. You find it? I'm going to start and catch up with me. Now it came about when the king, that's David, lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Natan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Natan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But in the same night the word of the Lord came to Natan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? Note that in the story. I find it interesting. Natan is a prophet of the Lord. David shares his heart. Natan says, this sounds great. Go for it. And God says, "Mm mm-mm. Just because the man's a prophet doesn't mean he's always right. And Natan didn't say, the Lord says, go do this. Natan just kind of took the initiative to say, go for it. Yeah, that sounds great, David. Go build the house. And the Lord has to go, excuse me. Natan, I don't need that. I have not dwelt, verse 6, in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Isn't it beautiful how, how God kind of reasons with David? Did I ever ask for this? Did I ever say this is something that I wanted? He doesn't deny David's heart, but he corrects his direction. Skip down to verse 11. Latter part of the verse, God has been speaking. He continues, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. That's marvelous. You know, when you go to give something to God, oftentimes He turns it right around and gives it back to you better than what you were going to give Him. And God says, I want to build you a house. He says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. Who's he talking about there? Jesus is the Sunday school answer. Are there any other options? Some are saying Solomon. Elder Doug shakes his head. Jesus, Solomon, David's son. Solomon was David's son. We'll read a little further. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Ooh, well, Solomon's not still around, is he? But the throne of his kingdom, is that... No, that that throne's not really still around. Hmm. 
keep reading. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, oh, now that sounds like Solomon. I will correct him with the rod of men and with the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him. That is my chesed, my grace will not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, David. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Natan spoke to David. This is speaking of the son of David, Jesus Christ. But but when he commits iniquity, Jesus bore the iniquity of all mankind. In essence, the iniquity of of, of our doing was upon Him and He bore the punishment for it. The correction for it. The wrath of God for it. Jesus bore. And His kingdom is an eternal one and Solomon understood this. Solomon, I thought we were talking about David. David would pass the info along to Solomon. Solomon did build a temple. Not an eternal temple. It was one that would be burned down within 500 years. 400, a little more accurately. Solomon comes along and he says, Psalm 132, verse 10. We believe Solomon wrote Psalm 132. Delich says it's suited to the mouth of Solomon. Psalm 132, verse 10. For the sake of David, your servant, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back of the fruit of your body. I will set upon your throne. Psalm 132 is a messianic psalm. A messianic psalm of worship where Solomon is not talking about himself, but he's talking about Mashiach. And then fast forward about 250 years and you come to Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 where the prophet Isaiah says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's a permanent throne. What God promised to David. A permanent throne. And this permanent throne, now seen, I believe, by John in heaven, this permanent throne is secured by a precious person seated upon it. A precious person. Verse 3. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Now get this, pay attention to this. You need to really track this as we go through the study. John uses metaphorical language from time to time. He also uses literal actual language. How do you know which is which? Pay attention to what he's saying. John just said he who was sitting was like a jasper stone. He did not say he was a jasper stone. He's not describing the one seated upon the throne as a stone of jasper or a sardius stone or or an emerald. He's not an actual. He's like a stone. So this is the language of description, of illustration. And to illustrate what he sees, 
as he looks to this throne, this solid, standing, secured throne, what he sees in this room is almost difficult to look at. It's absolutely brilliant. Colors emanating from the one who's on the throne. Not from the throne, but from the one on the throne. These bright and brilliant and amazing colors. Check this out. He says, like a jasper stone. Three stones are listed here. Like a jasper stone. Now, the jasper stone today would be, we would call it an opal. It's an opaque white. It's not... It's not what the jasper stone was as described here by John. That jasper stone would be more akin to a diamond. A pure crystal of a stone. Diamond dealers, they look at four things. When they're considering the quality, the value of a diamond, they look at carat. So the carat is the weight of the diamond. They look at cut. You've got your princess cut and your marquee cut and your different cuts. And within the cut, the way the diamond's cut determines how much brilliance, fire, and sparkle it has. These are all diamond dealer terms. Brilliance, fire, and sparkle. And if it's cut well and cut right, specific cuts will yield more brilliance, more fire, more sparkle from the cut. More importantly, the value of a diamond goes to the color. And there's a whole scale. It's called the Gia or Gia scale. And it starts with D and goes to Z. D being the best on the scale, the most perfect color of diamond. And then finally, clarity. How clear, how unblemished, how flawless is the diamond. So carrot cut, color, and clarity. If we were to apply it to this jasper stone, I think we could say, number one, that the carrot, the weight, is kabod. Kabod, that's the Hebrew word for heavy. Glory. Whenever you see the glory of God described in the Hebrew Scriptures, the word is kabod. That's the weight of the carrot of this diamond. There is glory going on here. The color? The color is off the scale. It is pure. It is absolutely perfect. It's not a D on the Gia scale. It's not even A. You can't even put it on the scale. The clarity? Flawless. And the cut? Well, this is a throne cut. Okay? Throne-cut jasper with incomparable brilliance and fire and sparkle. And get this, as with all diamonds, see, if he's describing this jasper stone, he says, one like a jasper. You need to not think, okay, so it's a, what, a, a clear stone sitting there? No. What does a diamond do when light hits it just right? It gives color. Colors as of a prism. You see the colors bouncing off of it. I believe what John is describing here is just multiple colors emanating from this one on the throne. Amazing, bright, sparkling, fiery colors. And again, all yielded from within. They're not reflected. A diamond will reflect colors and give you those colors of the prism. This one, the color is emanating from the one on the throne. These brilliant, amazing colors. John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. He's not like those soft white bulbs you know, that you can buy at the hardware store. Or He's not like those yellowish color bulbs. It's also not like those neon bulbs that are so bright and you look at them and they're, that, that's, he's, he's pure. Pure light from God. Pure brightness. Like a jasper. Like a sardius. 
he also says, in appearance, the sardius, we would say a ruby. The sardius is ruby red. It's a blood red hue that pierces through. Speaks in memory of Calvary and the Lamb. You see, Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, You are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He sees a red glow. And that red is indicative of, does speak of the blood. In fact, if you look over in verse 6 of chapter 5, I saw between the throne... With the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. Interesting. It's starting to become clear now. See, in chapter 4, we get colors. We don't get the shape. We don't get the persona as much as we get the colors and the brilliance and the glory and the sheen or the shine coming out of the one sitting upon the throne. But he's not described. And then you get into chapter 5. Here's a lamb standing as if Slain, Or if you skip down to verse 9 of chapter 5, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. A ruby red, a sardius stone. So multiple colors like that coming through a jasper stone like a diamond. And this ruby red also emanating from the one there. And this redness, understand... It speaks of more. More than simply the redness that reminds us of the blood of Jesus. You see, the next time the door opens in heaven, Jesus comes riding out. It's not John going in. It's not the church invited in. It's Jesus coming out and He rides to judge and to wage war. And Revelation 19.13, and we will not shy away from it, says He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And it's not His. It's not His blood. It flows actually from another place. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah 63. Roughly in the middle of your Bibles. Isaiah 63, verse 1. I've always found this prophecy interesting. We know that when Jesus comes again, Zechariah tells us He will set foot on the Mount of Olives. We know He's going to come by the way of the east. And even into the temple, through the east gate, the beautiful gate, the golden gate, He's going to come that route. So, to the Mount of Olives and into the temple. But apparently He makes a stop before then. Prior to the Mount of Olives, east of the Mount of Olives, in the land called Edom, which is southern Jordan today. And we're told in Isaiah 63, who is this who comes from Edom? Edom, With garments of glowing colors from Basra. This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trample them in my wrath and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my raiment. 
From the day of vengeance, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help. And I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger, and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their life blood on the earth. And these are the things we don't normally teach when we've invited bring a friend Sunday, you know. But this is Jesus come again. There are two ways that blood will pay for our sins, either his or yours. But blood is required. Blood is required by God. And the sardius red emanating from the throne should remind us of this. It speaks both of the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord in His own blood spilled for us at Calvary. Put your faith in Him and be saved. But it also speaks of the wrath of God and the Lamb in the blood that will be spilt. By the way, from the valley of Jehoshaphat to Basra. Basra is in Eden. The distance is about 200 miles. We will find later on in Armageddon and in the coming of Christ that the blood flows to the horse's bridles a distance of about 200 miles. So it is that, that valley that runs all the way from the valley of Jehoshaphat runs all the way down to Basra. But we'll talk about that in a later study. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in this, Romans 5, verse 8, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through Him. I'm going to point something else out to you that we will see after the first of the year, again, Lord willing, in chapter 6 of Revelation, that the wrath begins there. It doesn't begin halfway through the tribulation period. The entire first half of the tribulation is called the wrath of the Lamb. And God says, Paul writes, we shall be saved from the wrath through Him. Period. All the wrath. Which is why I absolutely reject a pre-wrath rapture, which is a, a belief that we will go up somewhere between the beginning of the tribulation and midway, midpoint. Some It's hedging your bets. And saying, well, just in case we're wrong, we're going to go pre-wrath. Again, more on that at a later study. But we shall be saved from the wrath through Him. We see there, from the throne, this imminence. Now now get this, because John's painting a picture, and the picture's going to continue to spread out. You ever see something in your life that's so fantastic, and you want to describe the whole thing, but you know it's going to take a little while, so you've got to start with somewhere and, and work your way around it. And that's what John's doing here. He begins with his impression of the the colors emanating from the one on the throne, like a jasper, brilliant in its color, like a a sardius, blood red in color, and like an emerald, he says. Like an emerald. I always found this part fascinating. There was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. A rainbow. The word rainbow in the Greek, we have, we borrow the same word, it's iris. Iris. And it literally means a circle of light, like the iris of the eye, the circle all the way around. And that's what he's talking about. Now, we we see rainbows, we see like 
a quarter of a rainbow, or sometimes we'll see a half rainbow, and we're really impressed when it goes from one horizon to the next. You ever seen a full rainbow? No, you haven't. It's not possible. There is a full rainbow all the way around the throne here, emanating from the one on the throne. But it's emerald green. By the way, let's be clear about something. God originated the rainbow. This is His design. These are His colors. Colors that have been commandeered by rebellious humanity in pride. But He's the one who originated the whole thing. And He didn't originate it for us to use as a banner or a rebellion or a placard. The rainbow was given as a promise of His faithfulness. The rainbow, my friends, is about His forbearance. Well, it doesn't really matter. Let them have the rainbow. No, I refuse. And I don't refuse because I want to make some kind of political or or even moral point. The rainbow belongs to God because the rainbow is a picture, every time you see it in the sky, of His faithfulness. Of a God who keeps His promises. I promise you, he says to Noah in Genesis chapter 9, verses 11 through 17, I, I'm giving you my word today. I will never again destroy the earth by water. I will never flood the earth again. And to prove it to you, so you know, every time it rains and the sun breaks through the clouds, you see that rainbow in the sky, that's my promise. That's my guarantee that I will never destroy the earth in this way again. Has he? We've seen floods in the world. Have we seen worldwide floods? Not a single one. God is keeping His promise. But Ezekiel saw this rainbow, this this iris, this encircling the throne. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28 says, As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. That's really what John's describing here is the glory. That emanates from the one on the throne. The jasper, which again would give off prism colors, multicolors, which is what Ezekiel saw. He saw the rainbow and he just said all these colors. John's more specific. He sees the bow. He sees the colors of the jasper, the red sardius, and he sees this emerald hue. And that's what I find interesting. Where are we in Oz? What is this? This emerald hue encircling the entire throne, 360 degrees. Just show of hands, how many of you have ever seen a green rainbow? I didn't think so. What's he talking about here? John is describing the circumference of the light, which is why he uses the word rainbow. This is coming all the way around the entire throne. But what about the color? And this is where we got to be a little bit careful. Because once you get into heaven, I still believe that there is one interpretation of the Scripture, many applications. We can make all kinds of applications. We could even say right now, the rainbow, when I see it in the sky, makes me feel like God's keeping His promise. And so that's an application of the interpretation that there's a rainbow around the throne. But what's the interpretation? And that's where it gets dicey because people come up with all kinds of things. You ever just have a a boring afternoon and you want something to do, get out two or three commentaries on Revelation and see what they say. Because there are some wild views of the different things going on here. Uh, Some say this green hue, it represents perpetual life. 
You know? It's like the springtime. It's like the evergreen tree. It's just ongoing life. Others say, no, no, no. The green and the rainbow means it's fresh. Like, like fresh, like new mercies every day. So, so it's the fresh grace of God. And the rainbow itself, because it's a rainbow, refers back to the grace of God as He showed to Noah. Well, that sounds good. I'm not saying that's not accurate or correct. I like the one I heard several years ago from Maureen Esker, our sister. We were talking about this very topic, and, and I said, what, is it, what do you think about the green? And, and Maureen said, green means go. Go to heaven. <laughs> is it like the green on the light saying, come on in? Is it a welcoming hue? I, I don't know. The best way to find answer, we've been over this, is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So the first thing we really ought to do is set aside this issue of the green rainbow for a moment and ask what's up with the stones. Three of them. Jasper, Sardius, Emerald. Is there something unique that we need to understand or maybe something that these stones are pointing to? Something that John is saying, I'm going to give three stones because I know when you put on your thinking kippah, your Jewish yarmulke thinking hat, and consider what might be going on here, you're going to learn something more about what is being said. Each of these stones has a unique setting. If you go all the way back to Exodus 28, you don't need to right now, you can just reference it for later. Exodus 28 describes something beautiful that has to do with precious stones. It's the breast piece of the high priest. The entire high priestly garb is described there in Exodus 28, but the breast piece itself had 12 stones on it. 12 precious stones. Exodus 28 verse 21 says, The stones shall be according to the names of the sons of Israel, 12 according to their names. So each stone on the breastpiece, and there were 12, three across, four down. And each of these stones was a particular precious stone, but also had inscribed on it a name of one of the tribes, of one of the sons of Israel. Twelve stones. So we've got precious stones here. Are these stones located there? Are they set there in that gold filigree on that woven grid? Check this out. Sardius and Jasper are the first and last stone. The Sardius, the red, and the Jasper, the clear. The first and the last. What did Jesus say about himself? I am the first and the last. I'm sensing some application here, Lord. Row one, the very first stone, because it's right to left for the Jew. Reading right to left, the first stone is the blood red sardius. First one on the list, the blood red sardius. Well, whose name is written in there? Only the firstborn of Israel, Reuben. The stone of the tribe of Reuben. The sardius red stone. Reuben, firstborn of Israel, heir to the birthright. Reuben's name means, behold a son. Behold a son. You hear it? In Matthew 1.23, the angel said, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So the angel is quoting the prophet Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, as he speaks this truth. Behold, behold the virgin shall be with child. The virgin will bear a son. Like Reuben, Jesus Christ is the firstborn. Not the first one born. 
No, He's the firstborn over all creation. Not born, not created in that sense, but the firstborn as an heir to the birthright. As Reuben is heir to the birthright of Israel, his father, so the son is heir to the birthright of God the Father. And we see that in the Sardius stone. First one on that breastplate. Row four. The last stone was the clear jasper. And inscribed on the jasper stone, Benjamin. Benjamin, the last born of Israel. But Benjamin's name means son of my right hand. Ben-Yamin. Son of my right hand. The right hand indicates all the power and the authority which we hear declared in the Psalm of the King. Psalm 110. We could go there, but I have a more interesting place to go. Jesus was having one of those conversations with the Pharisees. Conversations. He was schooling them. They're gathered together, and in Matthew 22, verse 41, Jesus asked them a question. He said, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? He knew their answer. He knew what they were going to say. They said to him, correctly, good Jewish leaders, he's the son of David. I'm sure they said it just like that too. He's the son of David. We know that of which you speak. And I could hear Jesus saying, do you? Do you really? He said to them, then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, son of my right hand, until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Psalm 110 is marvelous because it's a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. Between Yahweh and Yeshua. And David overhears this in the Spirit and writes Psalm 110 prophetically. And Jesus grabs hold of it and says, okay, so you say he's the son of David, and right they were. He's the son of David. But how can he be the son of David and be David's Lord? Implying one who is greater than, one who came before David. If he's the son of David, he comes after David, right? I love the response. Matthew twenty-two forty-six. No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. He just shut him up. Jesus is the first and the last. He is the heir to the throne. He has the right hand authority to rule on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, as we read earlier. And note this. The first stone... And the last stone, hit me today. All the rest of the tribes of Israel are between these two. The rest of Israel is, you could almost say, encompassed between the first and the last. Jesus, who is the first and the last. Jesus saves the world indeed, but He encompasses all of Israel before and behind. He goes before. He comes behind. He encompasses His people, Israel. He has not forgotten His chosen ones. Don't ever forget that Jesus has not forgotten. Even as the rainbow shows us the forbearance of God to keep His promises, God has promises to Israel. And Jesus has not forgotten, no matter how much the UN wishes they could forget Israel. Last week in the United Nations... One of Nikki Haley's final actions. Nikki Haley rocks, by the way. 
But in one of her final actions as UN ambassador to, or U.S. ambassador to the UN, she brought a resolution condemning Hamas and their rocket firing into Israel, into civilian cities. And that resolution at first looked like it was going to pass, but it failed. 87 nations voted for the resolution, 58 voted against it, and 32 nations cowardly abstained. The UN, get this, the UN has passed over 700 resolutions condemning Israel. 700, more than that. How many have they passed condemning Hamas? Not a single one. Not one. You see how upside down the world is? Take all religion, take all faith, take all belief in history and everything else. If you set all of that aside, tell me, does it make any sense at all to look at the situation in Israel and not at least slap the hand of a terrorist organization? For goodness sakes, where is our world? But, but, Jesus is the first and He's the last. He encompasses Israel. And Yeshua HaMashiach is seated on the throne in the heavenly throne room and He will soon rule on all these things. Useless nations, unnecessary. And He's the one who said in Revelation 22.16, I am the root and the descendant of David. How can David call Him Lord? Because David comes from Him. He's the root. And yet, He is also the Son of David, the descendant. He is the first. He is the last. What about the emerald? Can you find the emerald anywhere on the breastplate of the high priest of Israel? Indeed, you can. Exodus 28, verse 17. You shall mount on the breastplate four rows of stones, and the first row shall be a row of ruby, sardius, Benjamin, and topaz, that would be shimon, and emerald, Levi. Emerald is the color of the tribe of Levi. So row one, third stone in on the breastplate is Levi, Israel's thirdborn son. Why Levi? Why would Jesus pick this? Or why would John be calling out specifically, recognize this, he's calling out precious stones. So this should draw our attention to precious stones listed in the Scripture. And as we've seen, the sardius and the jasper are descriptive. Son of my right hand, firstborn. And then you get the emerald stone, the tribe of Levi. Levi means joined. Joined. It's an appropriate name for Levi, specifically for the tribe, because they were priestly mediators. Their role, their job, was to be a joining tribe between the people of Israel and God. They were the intercessors. They were the priests for the people. And it was through Levi that the people were joined to God, through the high priest who would wear that breastplate, that the people were joined to the Lord. How about now? Why would there be this emerald green as of an emerald stone emanating from the throne? Well, Jesus is the one mediator. He is the one who joins us to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me, He says. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The emerald. But, unlike the Levites who were limited in their priestly ministry, His is unlimited. 
because it's eternal. He, he's not of the order of Levi, though the expression of a priesthood, of a divine priesthood, of Jesus as our great high priest is there, emanating in that emerald green. The truth is he's not of the order of Levi. Jesus is of the order of what? Who? Melchizedek. You Bible students heard it. You got it. Melchizedek. King of righteousness. King of peace. You can read about Melchizedek in Genesis 14 and Hebrews chapter 7. And I encourage you to compare those two. Check it out. Melchizedek shows up to Abraham. As Abraham is coming back from the War of the Kings. And he's had this great route. And out comes Melchizedek from Salem, city of peace. So he's king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. King is Zedek, righteousness, Melchi. He's, he's the king of righteousness who comes from the city of peace, so he's also the king of peace. Are you getting that? And he comes out to meet Abraham, and you know what he brings out? Bread and wine. And he offers that. And Abraham offers him a tithe in worship. Interesting. Genesis 14. We don't understand it fully until we get to Hebrews 7, and the Hebrew writer says, yes, yeah, Jesus. Gives that explanation. Shows what was taking place. Paints that picture even better. Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. That is, His ministry precedes the law and comes after the law. Just as Jesus is the root and descendant of David before and after David, He's before and after the law. He's before and after time. His priesthood is eternal in both directions. And He's the one priest who became the sacrifice Himself. And so Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, therefore, back in the room here, let us draw near with confidence to what? The throne of grace. The throne of grace. So that we may receive mercy and find help or find grace to help in time of need. So we're coming into the, in the throne room here and we see this, this beautiful, this brightness, this brilliance. And then John begins to recognize, notice some other things as well. Verse 4, and around the throne, as his eyes adjust, <laughs> were 24 thrones, lesser thrones. But upon those thrones, he says, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Who are these guys? We're going to take a closer look at that on Sunday. I'm kind of saving part of it. But, but I'll give you a hint. Give you something to kind of wet your whistle and have you, have you chew on this. How many sons of Israel were there? Twelve. Twelve tribes. I mean, you could, you could go thirteen if you talk about you know, Joseph and his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh divide out. So there's thirteen and that, that's a whole different topic for another time. But there's twelve. The twelve tribes of Israel. How many apostles? Twelve. Twelve plus twelve is? Twenty-four. Twenty-four elders. Interesting. Is there something to that? They're all clothed in white. They're wearing these golden uh, Stephanos crowns, which are leafy crowns. What's going on here? We'll talk about it more on Sunday. Think it through, and we'll come back to it. But John sees them there, and they're all around the throne. Now it starts to get a little crazy. Verse 5. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. There is an awesomeness now. This is starting to get... I mean, I had to do some comparison. I'm reading through, I'm looking at how John describes the whole scene and it just gets more and more wild as we go. 
And I compare Revelation chapter 4 to the bridge Sunday morning. Our carefully, you know, prescribed worship service versus what's going on here. We got some practicing to do, gang. <laughs> to be ready for this. John, first of all, the colors alone. I mean, we, Glenn, we got to get a light bar or something up here. The wood's nice. We got to get some color. I want some sardius and some jasper, maybe a little emerald emanating around, you know, right around here. It'd be kind of cool. I'm kidding. But the colors, the, 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 his eyes are taken, and then his ears start to hear and lightning flashes and crackling and, and booms of thunder coming out of the throne. I love thunder. It scared me to death when I was a kid. You know, many of us, it did. You'd, you'd hear the thunder, boom, off in the distance, and you know, it's going to flash, it's going to, and the lightning would flash, and then boom, and here comes the thunder, and you'd count, you know. It's like that scene in Poltergeist. You count, and it gets closer and closer, and it's more and more terrifying. Don't watch Poltergeist. I don't even know why I mentioned that. It was an 80s thing. But the lightning and the thunder, there's something kind of thrilling, and at the same time, frightening, right? And I think that's what John's experiencing here. Thrilling and a little frightening. A, a little foreboding even. Bursts of lightning. <laughs> I'm coming toward the throne of grace to seek help and all of a sudden... <laughs> step back a bit. The thunder booms again. These flashes and peals are remarkable and, and awesome and ominous. Ominous because... They may indicate something else is going on here. Number three in our notes, if you're tracking this, a portent from the throne. A portent from the throne. Flashes of forewarning, if you will. Thundering threats. Remember when this all is taking place. Following the sequence of the revelation. After these things, after the church age, before the tribulation, which we'll pick up in chapter 6. We're in the in-between. In this scene in heaven, in between the end of the church age and the beginning of the tribulation, we have a moment here in the throne room. You can almost see the church arriving in the throne room of God in this amazing, remarkable moment. And there are booms and there are uh, thunder, lightning strikes from the throne. And part of the reason for this glimpse into heaven in chapters 4 and 5 inserted right here, get this, part of the reason is warning. It's warning. This precedes what is about to hit planet earth. This precedes the tribulation. John shows, writes about, having been given this vision of the place from which the wrath of God comes, His heavenly throne. As the lightning flashes and the thunder booms. Nahum chapter 1 verse 6, the prophet said, Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the burning of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by Him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. What a dichotomy. To come into the throne and know that you belong to Jesus. To know He's got you. To know that you are covered by the blood of the Lamb. To know it's going to be okay. And you come to take refuge in Him. And yet, who can endure the burning of His anger? 
who breaks the rocks. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. We've talked about this twice actually already. The seven spirits of God, the Holy Spirit. The seven spirits of God, like the seven lamps, seven lamps before the throne, the seven lamps of the golden lampstand before the mercy seat. And the lampstand itself in the holy place in the tabernacle. Back up for a second. You walk into the tabernacle. First thing you see in the outer courtyard there is you see the altar of incense, uh, the altar of sacrifice. You see the bronze laver. You go past them and into the holy place, and there on the left side you see the seven candled lampstand. All gold, pure gold, with the lamps lit up, oil lamps, seven of them on the top. And then in front of you is the altar of incense on which the priest would burn the incense and pray before the Lord on, the, on a daily basis in and out of the holy place. And on the right side, the table of showbread. All gold, all shining in the light of the lamp. On the other side of the curtain, the other side of the veil, the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat. Are you with me? Here before the throne... Seven lamps are burning. I'm saying the tabernacle and the temple are earthly representations of heavenly realities. And we see that right here in the throne room. As you come before, there's the throne. But in front of the throne, before the throne, are these burning seven lamps of fire. And it is the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this. Uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Seven manifestations or ministries or character traits of the Holy Spirit represented there. It's interesting when you think about the Spirit. We talked about this this morning at our staff meeting a little bit. That the, the Holy Spirit is Spirit. So you don't see Him physically represented. In Jesus, you see the physical representation. But you don't see the Holy Spirit physically represented except in two ways. Fire and a dove. He he descends as a dove on Jesus at His baptism. He is above the apostles as as of tongues of fire. And here, John sees, and he doesn't say... It looked like seven lamps of fire. He said there were seven lamps of fire. So the Spirit is representing Himself as the seven lamps, as the lampstand before the throne, before the holy place. Now wait a minute. If the Spirit is there, where's the church? See, Jesus promised in John 14, I'm going to give you My Spirit and He will never leave you. He will always be with you. The wind blows, Jesus said, wherever it pleases. You hear the sound of it, and you don't know where it comes from or where it's going, but so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Where the Spirit goes, we go. Where we go, the Spirit goes. Do you realize that the promise of Jesus is that the Holy Spirit given to you by God is with you forever? There will never be a time that you are without the Spirit of God. I'm talking on into eternity. And here we see the Spirit in heaven before the throne. So I ask the question, where's the church? I would say in heaven before the throne. With the Spirit. We're there because the Spirit's there. More on that on Sunday as well. And before the throne going on. 
Keep putting this picture together. There was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Now go ahead and use your imagination a little bit and and picture this. A sea of glass. But don't get too big with this. Some do. Some see this big, huge. Like the Sea of Galilee. And that's a great application. Think about the Sea of Galilee at total calm. Total peace. Some of you have been on the sea on calm, peaceful days. Jesus knew how to calm it down, right? The apostles cried out, Matthew 8, 25, Save us, Lord, we are perishing! And He said to them, Why are you afraid? And then He kind of answers the question in the question, You men of little faith. That's always where fear comes from. Why are you afraid, little faith? Why are you afraid, He says. And He got up and He rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became, the Bible says, perfectly calm. Glass. Water skiing. Weather. Perfect glass calm. That's the best best kind of water to water ski on. I know that because I did that like 30 years ago. The peace before the throne. Now remember, boom, lightning strike, colors. The elders around the throne. We're going to see in just a minute. Angels flying above. Worship going on. You can almost imagine this cacophony of, of worshiping the glory of God and what's taking place. And yet, here's this sea. Total calm. Peace before the throne. For all the awesome activity in the form of worship, there is always perfect peace in the presence of the Lord. And you know that works in your life? For everything that may be going on in your life, good or bad, good stress, bad stress, high activity, low activity, anything that's happening, family stress, crises, illnesses, all the stuff that that makes us just want to shut the door. In the Lord, no matter what's happening around you, there's perfect peace. I've experienced that sometimes in study. Most of the time, I, I gotta dial down and not hear anything. I got a noise machine and noise cancellation headphones in my office because this is a noisy staff. No, it's, it's not. But I have that just, just to drown out everything so I can focus in. And there are times I need utter silence. I feel bad for my kids. David, I, I feel sorry for you, son, because there are times I'm sitting there at the table and I'm studying and they go walking through and hiccup and I go, shh. There are other times, and I can't explain this, when I'm in, and I'm in the presence of the Lord, and I'm talking to the Lord, and I'm studying, and I'm just totally in the study, and I'm like this, the house could be falling down around me and I wouldn't hear a thing. Perfect peace. And it has to do with His presence. And I say that to say if you're stressed out, or striving, or worried, or freaked out about anything, you need to get into His presence. The world would say chill, which is the stupidest thing in the world because if you're stressed out, how do you chill? Oh, okay. I feel better because I just decided to chill. No, you get into the presence of God. You cry out to God. You speak the name of Jesus. Maybe you start to hum a worship song. But you get into His presence and then the cacophony may not stop, but you're at perfect peace. The steadfast of mind you will keep in shalom, shalom, because He trusts in you. Isaiah 23.6 And Jesus said, John 14.27, 
peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So there's peace in the midst of all that's going on in the throne. John looks over and he notices this glass, clear as crystal, the sea. But I said, don't make it too big. It's not a big sea. In fact, I think there's something else indicated here. There's peace, but there is also purity before the throne as well. Now, I took you quickly through the tabernacle real fast to kind of give you that that idea that the tabernacle is just an earthly representation of heavenly realities. Well, there's the lampstand, the seven spirits before the throne. What else is there? How about the sea? See, Exodus chapter 30, 1 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 8. What stood in that court of the tabernacle and the temple? It was called the bronze sea. The bronze laver. Big bronze bowl that the priests would go and they would do their ceremonial washing in the water of that bowl before going in and upon coming out of the holy place. The holy of holies especially, you had to wash The sea, the heavenly sea. But this heavenly sea, here before the throne, is as still as glass. Why is that? Because no one's using it. Why is that? I'll let Paul tell you, 1 Corinthians 6.11, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. You wouldn't be in the throne room otherwise. The very fact that you're there is because you have been washed. Which is, by the way, what baptism portrays for us. It's a picture of that washing that God accomplishes in us by His grace. And so here we are. Here's the sea, but no one's using it. So it's as still as glass. Unneeded because we've been washed. Now, I said earlier that part of the reason for this heavenly vision is warning. Warning. We're on the cusp of what is about to happen after these things. Here's the other part. Two reasons I believe that these two chapters are here. This picture of the throne room of heaven. Warning. And secondly, worship. Worship. This is what I would also call the praise around the throne. What was fashioned above the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant? You all remember what's on the mercy seat? What's... Hmm? Cherubim, right. Wings touching, facing forward. If that's an earthly representation of heavenly reality, shouldn't we expect then to see cherubim above and around the throne in heaven? Watch this, verse 6 continuing. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures. If your Bible says uh, beasts, scratch that out and write in creatures or beings. These are not beasts. There's nothing beastly about them. Now you may look at what he's about to describe and go, but that's only because we don't understand fully yet. We will when we get there. But he says, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. Putting the picture together, what a worship service. 
this is awesome. This is remarkable. We couldn't pull this off if we wanted to. And churches try to. That's, that's the remarkable thing. They get the fog machine going, you know. They got someone back there with, with one of those uh, aluminum pans going. Get the rain stick. Lights. It's all faux. It's nothing real. This is all going on, this, this reality, and it's remarkable, and nothing we have ever experienced on the planet could or will compare to this. This scene of worship in heaven. Uh, the first time the cherubim are mentioned, it's in the Garden of Eden. First we hear of them, Genesis 3.24, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim. Cherubim is the plural form of cherub, so it's, you don't ever have one cherubim. If it's cherubim, there's more than one. Because the em in, in Hebrew, if you add the em to the end of most words, it typically makes the word plural. So seraphim means more than one seraph. And the cherubim is more than one cherub. So he stationed the cherubim at least two. And the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. No one's getting in there. The Hebrew word cherub, uh, cherubim is how you would pronounce it. Cherubim. We're not sure what it means. We just know that that refers to this angelic being, this, this creature, that's this very unique in appearance. There's an ancient Akkadian word, so going way back, it's one of the Semitic languages, about 4,000, 5,000 years ago, and the Akkadian uh, word that's similar to Caribbean actually means to bless, praise, or adore. So it's entirely likely that that's where that word comes from and that that inherent in the name of this kind of angel means to bless, to praise, and adore because the cherubim have a primary role. It's the role of worship. That's what they do. And as a matter of fact, the very first time we see the cherubim stationed at the Garden of Eden, I can imagine there may have been some complaints. We have to stay here and guard this tree. Lord, we want to... But that's not... We're made to... Yes, Lord. Four faces all talking at once. Their primary role is worship. Interesting, because according to Ezekiel 28, verse 13, the devil himself was an anointed cherub. The description there is fascinating. Precious stones were his covering. Along with, the Bible says, pipes and timbrels. Musical instrumentation was literally created into Satan. It indicates that he was made to worship until the Bible says unrighteousness was found in him and now Satan hates worship. Hates when you worship. Hates hearing worship. No wonder he uses worship as a weapon in the church. You see, more division, more heartache, More hurt feelings, more frustration, more pride, positions, methods, styles, all of it. He uses as divisive tools in the churches where honestly the worship has nothing to do with us. It's not for us. It's for Him. It's about Him. Well, I don't like that song. I don't care. I mean, I I care. I care. But it doesn't matter if you don't like that song. I don't like old hymns, so... Maybe he does. Well, I don't like any of that new stuff. Maybe he does. Do you ever think that perhaps that song that you hate, he inspired? The worship is for 
God. Our attitude of worship is our offering to Him. And Satan got it all wrong. He started to make the worship about himself. He started to want to be the center of the worship, to raise himself up above the Most High. And ended up being put down. Well, back to the cherubim. Look at them. Again, in front and behind. Eyes. Actually, he says, all around. You can't... Can you imagine trying to sneak up on a cherubim? It's not going to happen. I see you. I know. Everywhere. Eyes all over the place. Why? I think we could say fairly that it indicates vision. (laughs) Good vision. 200, 200, I don't know. I mean, how many eyes? Intelligence? Insight? Can't get up early enough in the morning to pull a fast one on a cherubim. They know what's going on. They see everything. They want to see everything, but they don't see everything. In fact, interestingly, 1 Peter 1.12 says, it was revealed to the old prophets that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven things into which angels long to look. For all their eyes, they didn't get grace. And they're watching. The Bible says in another place, describes that, that we are the training ground for eternal beings. They're watching us. They're learning. God is teaching them about grace through us. And so all their eyes are on you. And they're watching to understand because they don't fully get it. How do we know that these creatures are cherubim? One more place I want to go. Ezekiel chapter 1. Check this out. You can either turn there or listen, but I'm just going to start reading. In verse 4 of Ezekiel chapter 1, As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually and a bright light around it, and in its midst something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. Within it there were figures resembling four living beings. This was their appearance. They had a human form. Each one of them had four faces and four wings. Each one did. So cool. Their legs were straight. Their feet were like a calf's hoof. They gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, were human hands. As for the faces and the wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. The nice thing is if you have four faces, you can go any direction and you always see where you're going. And when you have eyes all around, you don't need the faces anyway, but they've got that. As for the form of their faces, each one had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right, and the face of a bull on the left, and all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being, and two covering their bodies. Each went straight forward. Wherever the Spirit was about to go, note that wherever the Spirit was about to go, they would go without turning as they went. And in the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. What's that? I don't know. The fire was bright, and the lightning flashing from the fire... And the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. There explains the lightning that John saw in the throne room. It's not lightning. It's beings. Beings darting about. This is incredible. 
I looked at the living beings. Behold, there was one wheel on the earth beside the living beings for each of the four of them. I'm going to stop right there because it just gets more and more wild as you go on with Ezekiel. But you get the picture. Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 10 names those beings cherubim. These are the cherubim. Now John is describing the exact same being. Now apparently John only saw them from one angle, so he saw four different faces, not realizing they all four had four faces. He just saw them from one side and saw the one face. Also there in the throne room, John doesn't mention this, but we pick it up from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1-5. through Isaiah saw the fiery seraphim, six-winged, serpentine, angelic beings also there in the throne room. And all of this is going on. And when you look at what John writes, and you look at what Ezekiel writes, and you go to Isaiah chapter 6 and read what he writes, you start to get this fantastical picture of the worship in the throne room of heaven. And it's almost more challenging now to imagine the awesome beauty and splendor and bizarrity and wonder of these beings. I mean, in our perspective, I mean, it's almost comical to try and compare our worship services, really. And I'm not, I'm not saying anything negative. I love worshiping together. I love singing the songs. I love just getting lost in the worship. But when you see what's going on in the throne room of heaven and you compare it to a Sunday or a Wednesday here, we're just, we, we just are not there. We're not going to be there till we're there. Okay? But it's an amazing scene. What's up with the four faces? Why four faces? So many ideas have been offered. And everybody's got them. You know, the old rabbis say that the faces represent the four camps of Israel encamped around the tabernacle in the wilderness. And God gave marching orders like that. Camping orders, directions, if you will, in Numbers chapters 1 and 2. God said, Dan, I want you to the north. And Reuben, I want you to the south. Well, Dan had Dan, Naphtali, and Asher. And Reuben had Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. So three of the sons or three of the tribes of Israel in each one of these camps, one to the north and one to the south. And those were the smallest groupings of people. The symbol for Dan, we're told, not in the scriptures, by the way, But through tradition, we're told that the symbol for Dan is an eagle, and the symbol for Reuben is a man. Then you've got the largest group on the east side, and that's Judah. The symbol for Judah, well, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So the symbol for Judah is a lion. That would include Judah and Issachar and and Zebulun. You don't have to jot that down right now, but then to the west, Ephraim, who they say the symbol was an ox or a calf. That's the smallest number. If you can see what I just described to you, we'll lift it up. Here's the tabernacle. Here's the smallest number. Here's the largest number. And these two are about the same. So from an aerial view, what God saw in the camps of Israel was a cross, which is fascinating to think about. That even three and a half thousand years ago, God would look at His people Israel and see the cross represented in their camp. Some say that's what's going on with the four faces. It's the four, the four camps of Israel. Now if you go through those four camps, you find the twelve tribes, but among those twelve tribes, you don't see Levi. Where, where's Levi? Do you remember where Levi is? They're stationed all the way around the tabernacle on every side. They encircle the tabernacle. Levi, the emerald green like a rainbow around the tabernacle almost. I, just, I think that's interesting. 
So you see this picture. There's another long-held suggestion about these faces. Do the faces of the cherubim indicate the camps of Israel? It's a little Boy Scoutish in your thinking, but perhaps. Another long-held suggestion, and it's found its way into all kinds of artwork and carvings. In fact, I had, I had written that down, and, and I, in staff meeting today, uh, Brandy was sharing a picture of Neuschwanstein Castle that actually has the four, the four cherubim, or representations of those four faces uh, up on the wall in a, in a painting of the heavenly throne room. You see it throughout. A lot of cathedrals, Catholic churches especially, love to have uh, carvings that look like these four beings. Why is that? Well, if you go all the way back to the second century, our old buddy Irenaeus made a suggestion. He said, perhaps the four faces of the cherubim are akin to the four Gospels. You have Matthew, where Jesus is presented as the king, face of a lion. You have Mark, where Jesus is presented as as the servant, face of an ox or calf. Luke, Jesus is the son of man, face of a man. And John, Jesus is God, face of an eagle. So Irenaeus made that application. Can you make that as an interpretation? We don't have enough to go beyond. I think maybe that's a little closer, however, because of what is perpetually on the mind of the cherubim. Meaning what? Jesus. Jesus is perpetually on the mind of the cherubim. Listen, this is where we got to go with this. And I I spent way too much time over the last week trying to pick some of this stuff apart. But even as we talk about the precious stones and what they might mean, and, and, and we go and we, we start to look at the elders and, and we think about the lightning flashes and we talk about the cherubim and all the faces and we talk about the eyes and, and everything happening here in this remarkable, amazing scene of heaven, we can get really wrapped up in speculation. And it gets super slippery. Speculation can be an awful lot of fun, too. It's like, ooh, 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 ah. <laughs> it's like fireworks going off. Ooh, boom, ah. Face like a man, whoa. Hang on a second. Keep the main thing front and center. The cherubim are spiritual beings. They are spirit-led beings. They are intelligent and insightful beings and they worship. For all that we might want to pick apart here in the throne room, that's what's happening. It's worship. It's worship. It's worship. It's worship. By the way, it's what spiritual, spirit-led and intelligent beings do. They worship. Do you? I continue, I'll share this honestly, and I'm I'm not judging here, although sometimes judgment needs to begin with the church. It distresses me how lackadaisical all churches are with worship. How, you've heard me say it here before, worship becomes a warm-up to the main event, the teaching. As long as we get there in time for the day. Has Rick started that? Oh, okay, good. we're, We're fine. We can get another cup of coffee you realize that the worship is what we give to God. That's the only thing in our worship service that is our service to Him. That's what we are offering 
Him. Yeah, but I, I try to get there by 8.30 or I try to get there by 10.45. Boy, 6.30 on Wednesday nights is tough. I get it. I understand that. we got to drive. we got to move. When was the last time you were late for a movie? Or a Seahawks game. If you're going to go see the Seahawks, you know what you do? You get there early, you get your hot dog, you get your big Coke, you get your you know, your know, red vines, you get your popcorn, you get all settled in, and then the game's going to start at like 45. <laughs> How often do we take that same approach to the worship of God? And perhaps our worship on earth might be a little more heavenly if that's what we were bringing to the table. And I'm not, honestly, I'm not shaking a finger at anybody here. You want to know why I'm always on time? They pay me. (laughs) For years, my pre-pastor days, I was late every single Sunday. You know, five more minutes, okay, you hit the snooze and whatever. Car's not running right. Oh, we can stop and get a donut on the way. We got plenty of time. And next thing you know, you're walking in late. It's okay. It's only worship. These angels never stop. They worship perpetually. There's nothing else that they want to do. Jesus said an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship must do so in spirit and in truth. Sometimes I think we got the truth. You know, we're doing pretty well with the truth. You know? Y'all are great when I say Bible check and everybody holds up their Bibles and the vast majority have their Bibles here. Praise God, you know? And the book's open and you're studying and you're in. Praise God. That's awesome. So the truth part, doing good. How about the in spirit? How about the worship part? It is our spiritual service to God. And so we see verse 8. Night and day, day and night, they do not cease. They are perpetually saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Three holies for a triune God, recognizing that He is the I Am. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things and because of Your will they existed and were created. Why should I show up early? because he's worthy why should I give my fullest and best attention to worship because he's worthy and it has nothing to do with you or me it has nothing to do with do we have a bass player is the whole worship team available does Rachel have a cold it has nothing to do with any of that he is worthy What a beautiful scene that we're given in heaven. It's captivating. It's awesome. But don't miss, there's a warning going on. This is right before something about to take place. But there's worship going on. You know, 
I don't think anyone in heaven got the heads up that John was coming. Hey, John's coming today. Let's look busy. Get the band going. Make sure. We're... So when he walks in, we want to get the lights on. Fog machine rolling. Moot. Come on. John's coming. John is caught up in the spirit, and no one cared if John was there or not. They're all focused on the one on the throne. They're doing what they always do in heaven. Worshiping God. Never ceasing. Do you come before God ready to worship? Last quote. Charles Spurgeon said, If you and I should walk into some great cathedral where there were singing and ask to be allowed to sing in the choir, they would ask us whether we had ever learnt the tune. And they would not let us join unless we had. Nor can we expect that untrained voices should be admitted into the choirs above. Now, dear brothers and sisters, have you learnt to cast your crowns at the Savior's feet already? Do you know how to worship God? If you're not a singer, do you know how to make a joyful noise? Our attitude of worship, it's why we're drawn into the throne room and all glory Honor and power belong to the one seated on the throne, our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, a little throne room drama is going to break out. And we'll talk about that next week. Father, tonight we worship You. As we consider Your Word. And Lord, it is expansive. And I recognize there are so many nuances to the precious stones to the elders, to the fiery lamps before the throne, to the, to the sea. Lord, to the cherubim and the faces and the eyes and the wings, the lightning and the thunderings, all that we see taking place. There are so many things that we could pick apart and things that would satisfy and, and feed our curiosity. Father, what becomes clear to me at the end of all this is what's really taken place. And that is the worship of You. Father, right now we worship You. We need to worship You. We offer You all our praise. Lord, because You're worthy. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's take a moment and worship together tonight.